We are in the midst of a series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which I have said is Jesus' vision for the good life. This is God's whole new way of being human. And we've said that through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather Jesus is telling you who you become when the presence and the power of God come into your life. Now, it's especially important to keep that perspective in front of us when it comes to the passage before us today, because otherwise we could wrongly assume that Jesus is saying you could buy your way into heaven. But that can't be right. Remember that little thing called the Protestant Reformation that got kick-started by Martin Luther because of the sale of indulgences? Okay, so that can't be right. No, you can't buy a right relationship with God. You can only receive it as a gift of his grace through the work of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So you're reconciled in relationship to God. The moment you put your faith in Jesus rather than yourself for your standing in God's eyes, but that also changes your attitude toward money and possessions. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus famously says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now let me break that down for us. In in the scriptures, the heart does not represent the seat of human emotions, but rather the heart represents the seat of human affections. The heart represents the real you, the core of who you really are. The heart is the command center for your life. Whatever you most love controls your decisions and your actions. So Jesus is saying that everybody has a treasure. Everybody has something that they most love, and your heart moves to be where you place your treasure. In other words, your identity is bound up with your treasure. Your identity is bound up with whatever you most love. You are what you love. You become what you love. So as we consider this passage within the Sermon on the Mount that that is all about treasure, I'd like to consider Jesus' words about treasure under three headings. Seeing your treasure, storing your treasure, and serving your treasure. Seeing, storing, and serving. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find our passage printed on page 811 of the Pew Bible. You'll also find it printed on, in the order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us, 
so that Jesus' word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with you. We pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first thing to note is that you need to be able to see your treasure. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But first, I want to point something out. Throughout this passage, whenever Jesus speaks of treasure, he uses the word in Greek, thesaurus. Now, isn't that interesting? The Greek word for treasure is thesaurus. Now, in English, we use that word to describe a treasure store of words and meaning, which goes to show that our lives are meant to be a treasure trove of meaning. And whatever it is we treasure is what we look to to give our lives meaning. I'll give you a simple analogy. Many of you know that my wife Ashley's mother died in August of 2022, so Ashley spent a good chunk of the last year or so going through her mother's things, including her mom's iPhone. And talk about a gold mine. Ashley's mom's iPhone turned out to be a treasure store of memories because Pat didn't just accumulate posed photos or posed videos of our children, but rather she captured all of these candid shots and candid videos of our kids just being kids, spontaneously doing something silly or saying something ridiculous. And what's so precious about these moments is that they were also ordinary and everyday, so much so that you wouldn't have really have thought of even capturing them on video. And yet, it's those ordinary, everyday moments that once they're gone, you can never get back. Those are the moments you miss, the moments you wish you could relive. We thought they were gone forever, <laughs> but Pat had them all in her photo album. And our kids have literally spent hours, hours watching all of these silly episodes from their childhood. So you can ask them which ones were their favorites. But here's the point. We human beings, we are treasure-loving, treasure-seeking people. And Jesus is not anti-treasure. Jesus is pro-treasure. There's a lot of religious traditions out there that basically say, you know, the problem with us human beings is that we have desires, and these desires lead to attachments, and it's these attachments that lead to suffering. So if you want to avoid suffering in your life, you have to avoid attachments. The way to experience the good life from this point of view is to eliminate all desires. But that's not what Jesus says at all. No, Jesus is pro-treasure. He says everybody is going to treasure something. Jesus doesn't say don't treasure anything. Jesus says, don't treasure the wrong thing. So how do you know if you're treasuring the wrong thing? Well, some treasures are wrong, not because they're bad, but because they don't last. And the question is, how do you tell the difference between the two? Well, that brings me to my first point, which is that you have to be able to see your treasure. You have to see what you're treasuring. And that's what verses 22 and 23 are all about. Jesus uses this little illustration of the eye, but at first glance, it's not really obvious what it is that Jesus means. He begins by saying in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
Now, as a kid, when I first read this passage, I had no idea what Jesus was talking about. To me, it sounded like he was saying that our eye is sort of like a flashlight that illuminates the insides of our body. Didn't make any sense to me. So what is Jesus saying? Well, I'm no ophthalmologist, but the basic idea is this. Right now, we're in a room, a room filled with light. And if our, li- if our eye is operating properly, the light will pass through our eye and enable us to see so that our body can maneuver around this space without bumping into a column or a pew or tripping and falling down the stairs. But if our eye is not healthy, if it's not functioning properly, then our whole body will be full of darkness, will be groping around in the dark. There's no other organ in our body that takes in light in the same way. So if our eye is not healthy, then our whole body will be working in darkness. Now, Jesus isn't giving us a biology lesson. He's using this as a metaphor for our spiritual vision. So the point is this. Just as our physical vision affects our whole body, so our spiritual vision affects our whole life. And that's why Jesus is saying that we have to fix our eyes, we have to set our hearts on that which truly matters. And that's the only way in which we can navigate life correctly. Now, you might say, thank you very much for that illustration, but what is it doing here? Why is it here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount? And I'm glad you asked. This image is sandwiched between verses 19 through 21, which are all about money, and verse 24, which is all about money. And Jesus uses this very same image, this very same metaphor in Luke chapter 11, and then he goes on to say, watch out, be on your guard against all forms of greed. Now, if you stop and think about it, that's sort of an interesting statement on the part of Jesus. Watch out, be on your guard against all forms of greed, because most sins or vices are not things that we need to be on guard against. You sort of know if you're doing them or not. You know if you're committing this sin. You know if you're struggling with this particular vice. So consider this. I've been a pastor now for 18 years, and over all that time, many people, scores of people, have come to me to talk to me about some kind of problem in their life. They've said, I would like to meet with you because I need to talk about my, my problems with pride or I'm struggling with anxiety or with lust or with anger. But not once, not once in all those 18 years has anyone ever come to me and said, I need to talk to you about my greed. Not once. Now, why do you think that might be? Do you think that's just because people in New York City don't deal with greed? Is greed just not one of the vices, one of the sins that's common to man in New York City? I don't think so. What that reveals is that we are unaware of the influence that money has over us. And that's what Jesus is telling us. We need to be able to see what it is that we're treasuring. I'll give you a humorous example of this from the television show The Office. Michael Scott at one point says, sure, money's been a little tight, But at the end of my life, when I'm sitting on my yacht, am I really going to be 
worrying about how much money I have. No, I'm going to be thinking about how many friends I have, and I'm going to be thinking about my children and my comedy albums. And besides, I'm going to be sitting on a yacht, so I must have done pretty well money-wise. Well, now you see why Jesus uses this metaphor of the eye. There's something about money and possessions that distorts our vision, that prevents us from seeing things accurately. It exerts a power over us that blinds us spiritually. So money and possessions blind us spiritually. And that's why Jesus warns in one of his parables, beware of the deceitfulness of wealth. So wealth can deceive us. And part of the deceit is that it doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little, no matter how much money you have, you never think you have enough. Because no matter how much you have, you can always find somebody else. You can always compare yourself to somebody who has more. So the first thing that Jesus is telling us is that money and possessions exert an influence over us that we often can't see. And so, if you say at the end of this sermon, well, money, greed, it's not really a problem for me, watch out. That's not a good sign. That would be the telltale sign. That would be the first symptom that money is, in fact, a problem for you because of the deceitfulness of wealth. So the first thing is we need to see what it is that we treasure. And Jesus contrasts two conditions, light and darkness. But then secondly... Jesus says you have to store your treasure, and here he contrasts two locations, earth and heaven. But here we need to be clear, because I think that we have been perhaps more influenced by Plato and the ancient Greeks than the Bible when it comes to understanding the relationship between earth and heaven. So when Jesus contrasts earth and heaven, he's not drawing a contrast between down here and up there. And Jesus is not contrasting even the present with the future. Because as we'll see, if you lay up treasure in heaven, that doesn't mean that it's only in the future. No, treasure in heaven can be accessed. It can be utilized here and now. So what is the contrast? Well, you could think of earth and heaven as two different realms. Earth is simply human space where we dwell. Heaven is God's space where God dwells. And though the two are distinct, they overlap and intersect in all kinds of interesting ways. And one day they will be united fully and finally. So the contrast then between earth and heaven is not down here versus up there or the present and the future, but rather the contrast is between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. The things that belong to earth will fade, but the things that belong to heaven will last. And so Jesus is telling us that we need to understand that contrast if we're going to store our treasure. There's nothing wrong with storing up treasure. Remember, Jesus is pro-treasure. Store your treasure. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. So this is something that we should do. The problem is not that we treasure something and we try to store it. The problem is that we treasure the wrong thing and we try to store it in the wrong place. And the problem ultimately with all earthly treasures is that they will rust out, they will wear out, they will burn out, they will fade out, they will die out. 
or at the very least, you won't be around to enjoy them. Whereas heavenly treasure will not fade, it'll last. It's not temporary, it's eternal. So Jesus wants us to see clearly and then store the right treasure in the right place. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than on earth. But let's make sure we get the balance right. We need to think about what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount in the context of all of Scripture because nowhere does the Bible forbid private property, for example, nor is it wrong to save up money for a rainy day or for your retirement. There's nothing wrong with creating an emergency savings fund or purchasing a life insurance policy. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, for example, praises the ant because the ant is smart enough to store up food in the summer in order to have something to eat in the wintertime. So there's nothing wrong with putting money away for the future. And the Apostle Paul says that a believer who does not provide not only for his relatives, but especially for his own household, has denied the faith. That's a strong statement. So Jesus is not saying anything against making prudent preparations for the future. There's nothing wrong with that. That is simply being wise. Rather, he's warning us against turning money and possessions into our ultimate source of significance and security. Consider again the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, although that's often how he is misquoted. No, Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And consider that. If we're honest, we all know that no one actually loves money. We don't love money. What we love is what money can do for us. And money does different things for different people. Some people love money because it provides status. People with a lot of money operate at a higher social status. They're part of a, a, an elite social network. And if you have a lot of money, people want to know you. They want to hang out in your circle. They want to invite you to their parties, and they hope that you invite them to their parties. So some people want to make a lot of money in order to attain a higher social status, to break into those elite social circles. For other people, they don't love status. What they love is power. And we all know this. Money talks. What do we mean by that? When we say money talks, we mean that money opens up doors. It greases the wheels. It influences people's decisions and actions. And that's why the wealthy people in the world wield a disproportionate amount of influence and power. So some people want to make a lot of money so that they can wield more power and influence over others. Now, in both of those cases, if you treasure money because it provides status or power, it's very clear how your identity has been bound up with your treasure. But there are other ways in which your identity can be bound up with money that are much more subtle, not nearly as obvious. You see, some people treasure money because it provides them with security. Some people spend their treasure but other people sit on it. They save every penny because to them, money is the key to security. Consider Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol, which 
we often read around Christmas time. Everybody knows that Ebenezer Scrooge is fabulously wealthy and he's known for being both miserly and pitiless. But how did he become that way? Do you remember? The ghost of Christmas past takes him to the scene where his fiancée, Belle, breaks off their engagement. And why does Belle break off their relationship? She explains that the reason why she's ending things is because another idol has displaced her as first in his heart. And what is that idol? She explains it's a golden one. It is the desire for gain, the desire for more. So this is how she describes the scene. It matters little, she said softly. To you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? Scrooge rejoined. A golden one. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. You see, some of us fear the world too much. We're afraid of what might happen to us through chance or circumstance, and that's why we save every little penny so that no matter what happens, we think that we will be okay. We think if we just have enough money socked away that we can avoid hardship or we can avoid suffering. But you see, what this reveals, ironically, is that the identity of the spendthrift as well as the identity of the tight fist are both bound up with money. We often think a materialistic person is someone who just spends money recklessly. But no, a materialist is not only someone who spends money recklessly, it could also be a penny pincher. Because whether a spendthrift or a tight fist, you're making all of your financial decisions based on this world alone. So the love of money can take a variety of different forms. We make money our treasure because we're pursuing status or power, but perhaps because we're pursuing security. But if all of that is true, how do we lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth? Well, we have to think about those things that we can invest in now that will last into eternity. So what are the things that last into eternity? Well, first of all, we should invest in growing in our knowledge and love of Jesus because that'll last forever. One day we will see him face to face and we will spend eternity in his presence. Likewise, we should cultivate the, the qualities and the characteristics of Christ himself because these two will last. The Apostle Paul, in his famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, tells us that faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. They last. They're eternal. And that's why we should cultivate faith, hope, and especially love in our lives because love never ends. And that is why we have to prioritize our relationships, relationships of love, both with people 
in the church as well as with people outside of the church because one of the most important things that we could do, one of the most important things of eternal consequence would be to devote time and resources to introducing other people to Jesus through our prayer and through our conversation by, by handling their questions and, and pointing them to the truth that is revealed in the scripture so that they too might enter into a relationship with Jesus that begins now and lasts forever. The point is that money is a far better tool than it is a treasure. Out there in the world, people treasure money and they use people. But not in here. No, in the kingdom of God, we treasure people and we use money. We use money to advance God's kingdom purposes. Now, earlier you, you heard our financial update, and it's true. We have to raise close to $950,000 before the end of the year. And we need to expand our budget in 2024, not only to keep up with inflation, but more importantly, to hire staff in order to keep up with the needs of our growing congregation. And we would love it. We would love it if 100% of our members and regular attenders participated in the financial life of our church. That's the way it should be. And we would love for you to save the date for Giving Tuesday as we share stories from the heart of the ways in which God is at work changing lives in and through the ministries of this church. But I'm not here to pitch a fundraising appeal. I'm here to present you with a lifestyle you see, that's what Jesus is doing here. The Sermon on the Mount, it's the key to the good life. It's Jesus' vision for the flourishing life. And what he's calling us to is a radically different lifestyle when it comes to our money and our possessions. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it that I'm ultimately looking to as the source of security and power and status and safety in my life? How much money do I actually spend? How much money do I give away? Could I live more simply? Could I give more generously? Now, if, if you want to begin to understand what a life of generosity might look like, we put together a number of videos last year on the joy of generosity, which I would commend to you that gets into the brass tacks of how to cultivate that spirit of generosity in your life. And if you want a simple rule of thumb, you could try this on for size. Try the 10-10-80 plan. 10-10-80. Take the first 10% of your income and give it to God. He deserves the best. Give the first 10% to him to support Christian causes. Take the next 10% and save it for the future. And then live off the remaining 80%. 10, 10, 80. Now, I heard a pastor joke about this once. Could you give away more than 10%? Yes, you can do that. Can you save more than 10%? Yes, you can do that. Can you spend more than 80%? No, that, that would defeat the purpose of the 10, 10, 80 plan. But down through the centuries, what you need to realize is that Christians became famous, literally famous, for giving away their money in radical proportions to support the work of the church and to tend to the needs of the poor. And I wonder if that's true of us. Is that what we're famous for? If people could take a peek at our bank statements, would they, would they be shocked? Not by the total amount necessarily of 
money that we gave away, although maybe they should be. But would they be shocked by the percentage of what we receive that we give away? Would they be shocked? The Princeton historian Peter Brown wrote a fascinating book called Through the Eye of a Needle in which he surveys some of the early Christians living in the 4th and the 5th century and he argues that they were so concerned, so concerned with laying up treasure in heaven that they gave away their money to Christian causes in radical proportions. And the heroes of the story, according to Peter Brown's telling, were not necessarily the very, very small number of people who gave away everything they owned. No, the heroes of the story were the normal, average, everyday people who simply gave according to their ability, but in radical proportions. And he would say that that is what changed, that is what changed the pagan world of ancient antiquity into the Christian West. So I wonder how we might have a similar effect on our day. Well, the question is, how do we become people like that? And the answer is that we need to consider who we are serving. This is my last point, and I'll be more brief. Jesus not only tells us that everyone has a treasure, but that everyone serves their treasure. Your heart, yourself, your identity, your life is bound up with your treasure. Your heart moves to be where your treasure is. You become whatever you love. And that's why Jesus concludes this little passage in verse 24 by saying, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. Now that's a profound spiritual insight because Jesus is saying you will end up serving whatever you love the most, whether you realize it or not. So if you make money and possessions your treasure, you will become a slave to greed and you'll never feel like you have enough. If you make status your treasure, then you'll become a slave to acceptance and approval and you'll never feel like you fit in. Or if you make power your treasure, then you'll become a slave to strength and success and you'll always feel weak and like a failure. Or if you make security your treasure, well, then you'll become a slave to fear and you'll never feel like you're truly safe. Do you see that? We serve whatever it is we most treasure, but the difference is if we treasure God, if we treasure Jesus, then we will not be shaped by greed or by fear. We'll be shaped by love. You become whatever you most love. And that's why Jesus is the only master we can serve who frees us rather than crushes us. So how do you learn to treasure Jesus above all else? Well, you have to see how much Jesus treasures you. I said at the beginning that our physical sight affects our whole physical body and in a similar way, our spiritual vision affects our whole life. So we have to set our gaze, we have to fix our hearts on the right object, the true treasure. 
So the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, I love this verse because it says that the thing that motivated Jesus to go through the horrible ordeal of the cross was a joy that was set before him. But what did he not have? What joy did Jesus not yet have access to that he could only obtain by going through the cross? Jesus had it all in terms of status, power, security, and yet Jesus gave up his status. Though he is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be seized, something to be taken advantage of for himself. He gave up his status, but not only that, he laid aside his power. Jesus has more power in his little pinky than in the heart of the Son. And yet Jesus emptied himself and became not only a human being, but he assumed the posture of a servant and he gave up his, his security. He, he, he left his father's throne above, a place of ultimate security. And, and why did he do it all? He pursued this life of, of downward mobility. His story was not one of rags to riches, but riches to rags. He gave everything up. He humbled himself to the point of even death on a cross. And why did he do it? He did it for you. Do you see that? What was the one thing he didn't have that he could only obtain on the other side of the cross? It was you. It was a reconciled relationship with you. So you are the joy that was set before Jesus. You are what made it worth it. In other words, Jesus made you his treasure. And he was going to seek you out and find you. And once he did, he would give everything in order to secure you. And when you see how Jesus has made you his treasure, then that's what loosens the allure that money and possessions have on our hearts. And that's when we begin to give our money away in radical proportions because it's an act of defiance. It's a way of saying that my significance, my security is not tied to my wealth. No, it's tied to Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives my life meaning. Jesus is the one who makes sure that I have a future that is secure. There's so many places where the scriptures talk about how we are God's treasured possession. Deuteronomy, Exodus, 1 Peter chapter 2. We are his most prized possession and Jesus' heart moved to be where his treasure is. So Jesus was willing to give up everything in order to make you his treasure. And the question is, are you willing to give up everything to make him yours? Well, if so then you will start laying up treasure in heaven. Treasure that nothing in this world could ever touch. Treasure that nothing in this world could ever, ever take away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is pro-treasure. He wants us to treasure something and to store it somewhere and he warns us against storing the wrong thing in the wrong place and some treasures are wrong not because they're bad but simply because they will not last so father we ask that you would heal us of our spiritual blindness help us to truly see help us to see through the deceitfulness of wealth 
so that we might lay hold of the true treasure that really matters, that lasts forever, that gives us the status, the, the significance, the security that we most need and which nothing can ever take away. We thank you that Jesus has made us his treasure, and so we pray that you would help us to do the same. Help us to make him our treasure so that our heart might move to where our treasure is and so that we might become like the one we love, so that we might become like you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.